right, we're going to read our scripture this morning. Our scripture is Galatians 3, verses 1 through 14. Reads, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the work of the law or by hearing with, hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Did he then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are by faith who are sons of Abraham. And scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For many as are the works of the law are amongst are under the curse. For it is written, Curses is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, He who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Let's open up in prayer. Dear Father, Lord, we just thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, and that we stand before you not because we have followed the Lord, the, the law, not because we were perfect, but because of what you did on the cross. Lord, we praise your name uh, as we come to your word. Lord, I ask you to speak with Tom as he opens up your word. Lord, I pray that our hearts will be open to hearing what your, your word has to say, Lord, and, and to address the things that your Holy Spirit brings up in our heart. Lord, I just pray this in your name. Amen. Good morning. Have you ever thought about the fact that uh, that the only way we ever become wise is by admitting that we're fools? In fact, the, the very best and most powerful changes that ever occur in our lives come not when our wisdom is vindicated, not when God and men finally figure out that we've got it all together, but when our wisdom is utterly shot down. And the flip side of that is that the most catastrophic failures in our lives occur when we're most convinced that we're wise. The most critical turning point in the life of any person occurs when he or she finally says to God, Lord, I'm a fool, and I need you to tell me what's true. But that's not a once-and-done proposition. The shepherd and guardian of our souls commands us on an ongoing basis to be humble 
before Him in all things, at all times. To be willing at every moment to abandon something that we thought was true and wise because He has graciously revealed to us that it was false and foolish. The passage our brother Robert just read for us is as outrageous to the conventional wisdom of men as anything that you will ever read. And that means that we'd better be paying very close attention to it. To come to a passage like this with the assumption that we already have it mastered is to set ourselves up for a fall. If you think that you could never get off track on a matter as central to the Christian faith as this one, I urge you to go back and read Paul's rebuke of the Apostle Peter in the previous chapter. This is one of several passages in Paul's letters in which he declares with absolutely no room for compromise, no room for adjusting or tweaking, a truth that sets Christianity apart very decisively from every religion and philosophy that men have ever embraced except this one. Every single religion in the world with a significant following shares a fundamental understanding about the connection between righteousness and blessing and evil and cursing. The definitions of each of those words vary wildly from one religion or philosophy to the next, but those essential connections are fairly universal. The Bible presents those same connections between righteousness and blessing, evil and cursing, over and over, but in much more uncompromising terms. Those whose lives match up with the good and holy and perfectly righteous character of God deserve to be blessed. Those whose lives violate the good and holy and perfectly righteous character of God deserve to be cursed. Man's versions of religion don't have too much trouble with those statements as long as they get to define the terms. But here's where the Bible turns the reasoning of men completely on its head. God's Word declares with perfect clarity that all human beings fall into that second category. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and deserve to be cursed by God. God declared through the prophet Jeremiah, the heart, meaning the heart of men, is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? In Romans 3, Paul quotes multiple Old Testament passages to make the point as clear as can be. He says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks for God. For all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. So then according to the Bible, how many people deserve to be cursed? All of them. And how many people deserve to be blessed? None of them. There's actually one. (laughs) Jesus. How many religions in the world teach that? Just one. 
And it happens to be the only one that comes from God instead of from men. And by the way, you should be willing to declare that unapologetically. If all men are unrighteous and don't even know how to seek after God, how will men ever become sufficiently righteous to be worthy of blessing from the one true, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God? That's what this passage in Galatians 3 tells us with flawless clarity and simplicity. I want to show you where we're going this morning, and I will confess up front that I've stolen three of my outline points from Steve Lawson's outstanding message on this same passage. And I encourage you to go at, go to onepassionministries.org and listen to any of his 987 messages. <laughs> That'll take your drive time up for a long time. First, the definition of justification. I don't want to assume that everybody knows what that word means, so we'll talk about it. Secondly, the means of justification, how we are justified. And Paul will present that in two pieces. He'll explain how Abraham was justified, and then he'll explain that people from all nations are justified the same way Abraham was. The third main point is the enemy of justification. And finally, the ground of justification, his curse cured our curse. First, the definition. In Galatians 3, verses 6 through 14, Paul is talking about the one and only way that men come to be seen as righteous in the eyes of our perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God. And what he's talking about is justification. That's a legal term. It means to be declared righteous in the eyes of of the one and only judge of mankind, the way Paul uses it, in the eyes of God. Justification is God crediting righteousness to your account. And the kicker is, it's not your righteousness. It's His. The very best illustration of justification that I have ever seen in my life is found not in the New Testament, but in the Old, in the third chapter of Zechariah. I've referred to this vision several times lately, but it bears repeating. God gave his faithful prophet Zechariah a powerful and surprising vision. Zechariah is watching an amazing scene that unfolds in God's own courtroom. The judge in the courtroom is the one called the angel of Yahweh. And without taking the time to lay out the multitude of evidence to prove how I know the identity of that person, I'll simply assert that the angel of Yahweh is God himself in the person of the pre-incarnate Christ, the only person of the Trinity who, according to John 1, 14 to 18, has ever made God visible to men. The defendant in the courtroom is a man named Joshua, a real person who was high priest in Jerusalem and Judah during the time of Zechariah. As Joshua stood before the judgment seat of Christ, his accuser was standing right beside him, and his accuser was none other than Satan. And things weren't looking good for Joshua because he stood in that courtroom before a perfectly holy God, clothed in robes covered in excrement. He was as grotesquely unclean and unworthy to stand before that righteous judge as he possibly could have been. 
And Satan, of course, was loving it. The accuser was chomping at the bit to point out to the judge the horrible uncleanness of the defendant. But before Satan was allowed to say even a single word, Yahweh, the holy judge, rebuked Satan and declared of Joshua and of Jerusalem, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And God then instructed His angelic servants to remove the filthy garments from Joshua. And God said to Joshua, See, look, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. The angels then put a clean turban on Joshua's head and they clothed him with clean royal robes while the angel of Yahweh was standing by. What good works had Joshua done that affected God's verdict in that courtroom? None. What words of defense did Joshua utter in that courtroom? None. He didn't say a single word. God was the only active agent in that vision. God gave Joshua what he did not deserve. Beloved, that's God's own word picture. And it shows us how his miraculous gift of justification works. It is the perfectly holy God acting entirely and only on His own initiative, silencing every accusation against us, utterly removing from us the grotesque and condemning uncleanness with which we come into His courtroom. It is the righteous judge whose character we have violated, declaring our sin to be gone putting it away from us as far as the east is from the west, and then clothing us in what Martin Luther rightly calls an alien righteousness. A cleanness before God that doesn't come from us at all, but that instead comes from the judge. If that doesn't fire you up, your kindling is wet. That illustration from God Himself is the best explanation I could ever give you of the gift of justification. In Galatians 3, verses 6 through 9, Paul presents the one and only means by which that justification is applied to men, women, and children. And then he proves that that same means extends not just to Jews, certainly not just to those who are circumcised, but to people of all nations. First, he declares that Abraham was justified by faith. Now, in the previous passage that I asked asked Robert to include in his reading this morning, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3, Paul pointed back to the experience of the Galatian saints when they first heard and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. He reminded them, that the way they came to have spiritual life and to receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was by hearing with faith. Now, to establish his airtight case that the one and only means of justification is to hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul points the Galatians further back. 
way back, way back in the history of God's dealings with mankind to a man named Abraham. And he quotes God's own declaration concerning Abraham, concerning Abraham from the first book of the Bible, a declaration found in, Galatians, in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Paul is being very strategic here, by the way, in light of the, the current crisis among the Galatians, which was the heresy of the Judaizers. See, as he points the Galatians back to Abraham, he's keenly aware that it was to Abraham that God first gave the command to be circumcised. And the Judaizers were zealously seeking to impose that command upon Gentile believers who had come to faith in Christ. It was also Abraham whom God first explicitly declared to be righteous on the basis of faith. Not that he was the first believer, not that he was the first man justified, but he's the first one in the Bible explicitly declared to be justified on the basis of faith. The Judaizers would have absolutely loved it if the Old Testament had presented the history of Abraham in that order. That is, if Abraham had been circumcised before God declared him to be righteous. But that's not how it happened. Let's review how it did happen. Abraham started out as a pagan. He was just one inconsequential guy from one of the very many Nations enumerated in Genesis 10 that descended from Noah after the judgment of the great flood. But God laid hold of this one man from among all those many nations, a man whose name was originally Abram, which means exalted father. God laid hold of him in order to reveal himself to that man and to make a covenant with him. In Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, God promised to give Abram three things. Land, seed, and blessing. First, a special place, the land of Canaan. Second, descendants. God promised to make of Abram a great nation. Now remember that wording, a great nation. But God's promise concerning Abraham's descendants didn't stop with physical Descendants, because the third promise that God made to Abraham was to bless him and through him to bless all the families of the earth. That's Genesis 12. 25 years later in Genesis 17, God changed Abram's name from Abram to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And God told him twice in two verses, Genesis 17, verses 4 and 5, that he would make Abraham the father of a multitude of nations. It's not the same promise as God saying to Abraham, I'll make you the father of a great nation. He says, I'll make you the father of a multitude of nations. That promise, I believe, was an amplification, a further explanation of the third promise that God originally gave to Abram in Genesis 12, the promise that God would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. All those from every nation who would ever receive the promised blessings would become spiritual descendants of Abraham. Spiritual sons of Abraham. In that way, God would 
quote, multiply Abraham exceedingly. <laughs> Genesis 17, 2. Later in that same chapter, God commanded Abraham to be circumcised as a physical sign, a memorial of this covenant that God had made with him. And he commanded every single male among Abraham's physical descendants to be circumcised from that day forward. Between those two chapters, Genesis 12 and Genesis 17, before Abraham was ever circumcised or commanded to be circumcised, God declared Abraham to be righteous. Not because of something Abraham did, but because of what Abraham believed. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him, it was credited to his account as righteousness. The specific declaration that God had just given to him at the beginning of chapter 15 was in two parts. First, that Abraham, who was then approaching a 100 years old and was still childless, would nonetheless have an heir from his own body. And secondly, that Abraham's seed, singular, would be as the stars in heavens for number. And then Abraham believed and the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And that phrase, by the way, he reckoned it to him as righteousness, you could put that in just three words, God justified Abraham, because that reckoning process is what justification is. That justification, that declaration by God that Abraham was righteous in God's eyes by trusting in God's promise is the event to which Paul points us in Galatians 3, verse 6. That's how Abraham was justified. Galatians 3 verses 7 and 9 are bookends for an amazing declaration in Galatians 3 8. We're going to look at the bookends first. In this, in these three verses, Abraham is moving, uh, uh, Paul is moving from Abraham to people of all nations. And he's explaining that all, that people from all nations are justified the same way. He says, Verse 7, therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham. And the word be sure is the word know in the imperative. Know that it is those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham. In verse 9, he repeats that phrase, those who are of faith. He says, those who are, he says, all the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Now, those two verses make the same essential point in slightly different words. One sort of amplifies the other. Each declares something that is true of those who are of faith. Now, Paul referred very negatively in chapter 2, verse 12, to the party of the circumcision. He was talking about Judaizers who based their good standing in the eyes of God on the fact that they were circumcised and that they kept certain key aspects of the law of Moses. Now he's talking about another party, the party of faith. When he says those who were of faith, he's talking about those whose standing in the eyes of God is based on just one thing, faith in the promise of God. Those who have been declared righteous by God, by faith alone, just like Abraham was. It is they who are the real sons of Abraham. It is they who are blessed with Abraham 
the believer. God's promise that he would bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham is the promise of justification by faith for all those who believe as Abraham believed. It is only those who follow the template of Abraham's trust in the promise of God, and it is all of those who do so that inherit the blessings God promised to Abraham. Not to Abraham the good. (laughs) Not to Abraham the law keeper. Not even to Abraham the circumcised, because he hadn't been circumcised yet. No. All who believe the promise of God inherit the blessings that God promised to Abraham the believer. In verse 8 of Galatians 3, Paul removes all doubt about what he's getting at. He says, And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, listen to this, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. See, the gospel that God preached to Abraham is the one true gospel that transcends all boundaries, all historical contexts, all national and religious and cultural and racial distinctions. It is the good news of God's righteousness credited to undeserving men only one way. By faith in the promise of God. And the reason that's the gospel, beloved, is because that promise is fulfilled only in Jesus Christ. The way people from all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham would be through faith in the same promise that God gave to Abraham and that Abraham believed. Now, I think many Christians have a nagging tension in their minds because it looks to them as if Abraham was declared righteous without ever knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they don't know what to make of that. But Paul says the opposite. He says that the gospel Abraham believed is the same gospel he preached. It was the gospel preached beforehand. Abraham just got it early. He didn't get the whole vivid, living color fleshing out of it. He didn't get to look at the cross as an established historical fact but he was trusting God to fulfill a promise that is fulfilled only in Jesus Christ. What God gave Abraham was the seed form of the promise that finds its fruition only at the cross of Christ. From God's perspective, that has always been the same promise. And God's perspective is the one that matters. It's the same good news. In John chapter 8, at the end of one of many confrontations that Jesus had with the smug Jewish leaders who thought that they were in fine standing with God, Jesus made a statement about Abraham that made those Jews once again want to kill him. He said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. And the Jews therefore said to him, you're not even 50 years old and you say you've seen Abraham? To which Jesus replied, before Abraham existed, I am. 
They picked up stones to kill him because they knew what he was claiming about himself. I don't know how much detail God made known to Abraham while he still walked the earth, but I know without question that when God promised to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham, Abraham trusted God to fulfill that promise. Romans 4 says he knew that what God had promised, he was able also to deliver. And that promise is fulfilled in in Jesus Christ. And God reckoned Abraham's faith to him as righteousness. Any man, any woman, any child in any age of history, from any nation, anywhere on the earth, who hears and believes the promise of God concerning Jesus Christ is thereby justified. Declared righteous forever in the eyes of a holy God. And that is the one and only way that anyone is ever justified before God. My dear brother Brad Burton, I've heard him say to young people many times, if you don't have the faith of Abraham, get rid of whatever faith you've got because it's the wrong faith. All right. So with Abraham's faith as the template for all people from all nations and all ages, Paul declares that the only way anyone... Jew or Gentile will ever stand righteous before our holy God is if God gives him that righteous standing as a gift by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Period. End of argument. Right? Well, theoretically right, but Paul's not finished with his argument. The period doesn't come just yet. Because Paul has one more point he wants to drive home to the Galatian saints. He wants to look at this from the negative side as well. He wants to make sure that we are very, very clear that this gracious, entirely undeserved gift of God, justification by faith alone in Christ alone, has an enemy. The gift has an enemy. And the enemy is works. I'm using uh, Steve Lawson's words there. The enemy of justification is works of the law. You know what made the war in Vietnam almost unwinnable? Note that I said almost. (laughs) What made it almost unwinnable was that our troops so often couldn't tell the difference between friend and enemy. And when you don't know who the enemy is, your efforts to do battle against your enemy are very badly compromised. Paul is not about to let that happen with his beloved Galatian children in the faith, and he's not about to let that happen with us. He identifies the enemy of the gospel, he cuts that enemy down, and he takes no prisoners. Paul draws a hard boundary between faith and works that leaves absolutely no room for compromise. One side of that boundary is God's territory, and the other side of that boundary is enemy territory. As Brother Lawson says, Paul isn't just dogmatic about this, he's bulldogmatic about this. Paul is not negotiating with the Judaizers. He's declaring them cursed, condemned, by God Himself. He says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, 
Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. He's quoting from the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 27-26, to declare the same thing that James declares in James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles in one point is guilty of all. See, if you want to be righteous in the eyes of God by doing works of the law of Moses or of any other law, you know what your batting average has to be? A thousand. Not 999. It has to be no misses. Just home runs. Because to miss the mark of God's own righteousness and holiness at all is to fall short of the glory of God and that's all it takes to condemn you. In God there is no darkness at all. There is only light. God will not receive anyone into His holy presence and into His kingdom who does not possess His righteousness. In Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus blew away the Pharisees' whole concept of righteousness. He laid out the true standard, the true bar. They thought it was down here where they could reach it and He said it's up there where God is. And he finishes that, that segment of Matthew 5 and verse 48 by saying, Therefore you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's what Paul is saying here in Galatians 3.10. The man who seeks to be justified by works is cursed. Any effort to add law to faith is a cursed effort. Law-keeping is the enemy of Christ trusting. Law-keeping was doomed from the start. We'll see that spelled out very clearly later in chapter 3. To put a final nail in the coffin of law-keeping, Paul then presents two contrasting statements from the Old Testament, revealing two possible, two conceivable paths that men take in the pursuit of life. The first quote from Habakkuk 2 verse 4 presents the path of life and blessing. The righteous man shall live by faith. (laughs) A declaration that shows up here. It also shows up in Romans 1, 16, 17. That's the declaration that God used to turn Martin Luther around and to give him life. The righteous man shall live by faith. See, the way we come to have life and the way we live that life is by hearing and believing the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul's second Old Testament quote also uses the phrase, shall live by, but it's a very different statement. From Leviticus 18.5, and it presents the condemned path. Paul says, however, the law, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them, the works of the law, shall live by them. In other words, when you get on the path of law-keeping, the only way you will have life is to keep the law perfectly. But Paul just explained the catastrophic problem with that approach. God doesn't grade on the curve. When you stand before the judgment seat of God, you won't get to say to Him, as Islam teaches that you can, Lord, check this out. I'm pretty sure that the scales here lean at least 51% 
on the righteous side. So you gotta let me in. Wrong. You are either a hundred percent righteous or you are a hundred percent cursed. And that means that everyone who seeks to be righteous in the eyes of God by law keeping is a hundred percent cursed. You know who you'll be competing with if you come to God holding up your good works? You'll be competing with God's Son. The only real law keeper that ever walked this earth. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. He didn't say I came so you would fulfill it. He said, I came to fulfill it. Christ fulfills the perfect requirement of God's law in your place because you can't. That means of justification is faith alone. And the enemy of justification is man's substitute for faith, man's good works. And that enemy is an insult to God's amazing grace. It is the very negation of that grace. For if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died needlessly. Galatians 2, 21. I know this may rub some the wrong way, but I'm going to say it because I believe it's of very, very great importance for the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we're called to proclaim to this lost and dying world. When we make good works the necessary proof to God of our faith, instead of seeing good works as the expected fruit of that faith, I believe we step into enemy territory. The notion that good works will have anything at all to do with our perfectly righteous standing in the ju- at the judgment seat of God, I believe, is a negation of grace. Now, I'm not going to name names, but I think the only way I can reasonably make this point is to cite an, an example of what I'm talking about. And this is from a, a very well-known, very respected preacher that I love to read and listen to. Quote, our final salvation and glory is contingent on a life of transformed holiness and love. Okay, not too bad so far, but listen to this. At the judgment, at the judgment, we will be judged according to works. Not simply to determine what relative rewards we will receive in the age to come, but as evidence of our being justified by faith. Works will bear witness to the validity of faith in the last day. Final salvation is contingent upon a life of obedience beyond faith. I'm still quoting. What God will be fishing for, as it were, at the last judgment is, did you receive Jesus Christ savingly? But He will put on the table the life of obedience. I think he will sweep off the table all your failures, all your shortcomings, burn them in the file of the cross, and what is left by way of your C+, B-, B+, A-, good works, he will say, there is the evidence that you were trusting me. And because you trusted my son, his righteousness has been imputed to you, and on that basis, you're in. That dear brother goes further than most preachers are willing to go, but I believe the essence of what he's declaring is far from unusual. 
He's just taking an argument advocated by many preachers to its logical conclusion and being a bit more honest about it than most. And my response to his words is simple. There is only one work that will get me or you into the presence of God. And Jesus, in his dying breath, declared that work to be finished. The sliding scale of righteousness that is inherently part and parcel of the approach I just read to you is exactly what Paul summarily blows away right here in this passage and in many other passages. That same approach to righteousness is what Jesus blasted in the Sermon on the Mount. If we rightly declare in one breath that such a conveniently adjusted standard of righteousness cannot possibly be the basis of our justification, but then in the next breath we say that just such a measure of righteousness is nonetheless necessary proof to God himself of our saving faith. Beloved, I think we nullify the grace of God in Jesus Christ just as decisively as if we had called that sliding scale both the basis and the proof. Brothers and sisters, if you think that your works have anything at all to do with your righteous standing before God now or at the judgment seat, you better think again and think hard because I believe you're standing in enemy territory. Romans 4, verse 5, and I want you to listen carefully to this verse because it's outrageous. Romans 4, verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is reckoned as righteousness. That is a scandalous, outrageous declaration. It is as scandalous and outrageous as any that you will ever hear. It defies all our sensibilities about merit and fairness. And you know why it's so scandalous and why it's so so outrageous? Because God intended it to be. The moment you tweak it or adjust it or qualify it with even a single word, you stop embracing the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. The moment you declare it not to apply at any point in the life of a believer from his justification day to his glorification day, you stop embracing the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that we, just like the apostle Peter, find pure unmerited grace so hard to fully accept does not change the fact that our eternal life utterly depends upon it. And it does not change the fact that the gospel that God has left us here to preach utterly depends upon the freeness of the gift. It is either of grace or it is not. You want to know how to trust trust Jesus Christ savingly? Trust Jesus Christ. Believe in the Son of God who loved you and delivered Himself up for you just like Paul did. And just like Paul said he continued to do every day of his life. That's how you came. If you're a believer, that's how you came to life from the dead. And that's how you live every single day. It's not about the quality or quantity, or consistency of your faith. It is about the worthiness of your Savior whom you trust. If He, Jesus, 
is worthy for the presence of God, then you who are depending on Him alone to be your righteousness before God are worthy for the presence of God in Him. If He is not worthy, you are not worthy. And you will never be worthy. That is the totality of the test that determines whether you will spend eternity with God forever or you will spend eternity separated from God. And you know what? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not waiting for that test. You already passed it. In John 5, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, does not come into judgment, does not come into judgment, but has already passed out of death into life. God won't be fishing through your works on judgment day to see if your faith was real enough to get you into heaven. God is the one who declared that works have nothing to do with what makes you righteous in His eyes. Believe in the Son of God who loved you and delivered Himself up for you. His righteousness alone is the very ground of your righteous standing before God now and forever. And if you have not trusted in Him, you are not righteous in the eyes of God. You can work yourself till you're blue in the face. And your works are just filthy rags in the eyes of God. Trust in the only righteous lawkeeper that ever lived, Jesus Christ. It's His righteousness that makes you right before God. That brings us to the last two verses. I know I'm going a little long here, but this will be quick. Paul finishes this explosive passage by drawing our attention to the ground of our justification. He has established that the means of our justification is faith. That's how we receive the gift of Christ's own righteousness. It has to be by faith alone because when someone else does all the work and we do none of it, our place is a place of utter dependence. So all we can do is trust in the one who did the work. And even that trust comes from God. Now in verses 13 to 14, Paul goes beyond the means to the cause to the ground, to the source. And he explains why justification not only has to be by faith alone and not by works, but it has to be by faith alone in Christ alone. He says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And then he quotes one more Old Testament passage from Deuteronomy 21-23, and he says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Under the law of Moses, some violations demanded stoning to death as the punishment. After such an execution, the body of the deceased offender was displayed publicly by being tied up to a tree until dusk, announcing to all Israel that that offender was cursed by God. Interestingly, the body was taken down before twilight and Many of the, the rabbis and the Jewish expositors believed that was pointing to mercy on the part of God, that that curse may not be like an eternal curse. That would depend on whether the person had been justified by faith. 
Our sin, our guilt, our shame was laid upon Jesus Christ and He was executed in our place and He was raised from the dead. But when He was executed, He was hung on a tree, on a cross. And Paul is pointing to Christ and he's saying, His curse cured our curse. Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6 says, Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. And that was written 700 years before Christ came and fulfilled it. Jesus made himself our perfect guilt offering. His curse cured our curse. The only righteousness that makes us stand spotless and blameless before God so that we may dwell in his holy presence forever is the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us as a gift. A gift that we receive only one way. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Dear Father, on that last day when you hand us a crown of righteousness, we will cast it back at the feet of our glorious Savior because He's the only one who is worthy of it because our righteousness will be only His righteousness. That's the only reason we'll ever stand in Your presence, Father. So we give Him all the glory. We pray that You will keep us clear about the absolute nature of this gift. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.